this week on the Back Table Podcast. I mean, again, the most important thing is just remember that these guys are very vulnerable. They are hopeless. They are just looking for answers for somebody who can actually listen to them. Um, the other thing that I would, you know, make sure is like if they have a partner who supports them, try to involve them in the conversation because these guys are going to leave your office like super pumped. They're super happy and excited that they have they're going to have a solution. And then they go home. Their partner asks them like, hey, so what did the doctor say? And then they don't remember anything that you told them. <laughs> back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Jose Oche Silva as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Clavel. Uh, Dr. Clavel is a men's health specialist and assistant professor of urology for UT Houston. He did urology residency at UT Houston, then did a fellowship in sexual medicine, andrology, and prosthetic urology at the same institution and at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So, Jonathan, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? It's been a long you, time. It is. It has been <laughs> a long time. We, we, we did recent, recently, uh, was it for, for Boston Scientific, the, for Resume, just a, a talk about I mean, our experience with, with those products. And it was good to to get in touch with you. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I still remember when I was a, a intern. I was a preliminary year, doing a preliminary year in general surgery back back in Puerto Rico. You were a chief resident, um, and yeah, we had good times back then. <laughs> yeah. So did you did one one year there, and then uh, you got the opportunity to go to UT Houston, and you did. Uh, so so t talk to me about uh, talk to us about uh, how was that you entered the sexual medicine world. Uh, was it something you you were thinking about uh, before uh, residency or it was while you were in residency that you fall in love with this? I, I think I think it would be a little bit creepy if I told you that <laughs> that I went into urology thinking that I was gonna I wanted to be messing with penises all the time. True. Uh, but you probably don't know this, but I mean the very first case I, I saw when I was doing my sub I in urology as a medical student Uh, was a radical cystectomy with an ileal conduit, and you were doing that with Manuel Omar um, and Dr. Puras. I uh, thought okay. it was really cool to create a bladder out of a piece of bowel. Uh, I'm like, you know, I want to do that. But then during residency, I was actually more into endourology and peds. I loved my, you know, stone cases. Uh, I loved, you know, doing my rotation here at Texas Children's. Uh, however, most of my research was actually on penile rehab after prostate cancer treatment. So that's how I was basically exposed to the sexual medicine world. Um, out of that, I was given an opportunity to go to a prosthetics uh, cadaver course uh, at the that the SMSNA, which is the you know sexual medicine society uh, for those that don't know. Um, and it actually that that society provides a course for residents uh, to be working on cadavers with you know prosthetic experts. And I was a PGY4 at the time, and uh, the meeting was in Scottsdale. And there, learning out, you know, learning about what others did in the sexual medicine uh, world, and seeing the passion in which you know other sex med experts spoke and gave their presentations, that's when I knew that this specialty was for me. And it's crazy how things work because this year's 
uh, meeting is going to be in Scottsdale. We're finally going to be able to be there present. And they actually invited me to give a presentation on how to manage oh, wow. complications related to prosthetics. So that's awesome. And congratulations on your work. I mean, oh, yeah, you, thank you. Thank you. You definitely have been, I mean, working for this and, 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 and putting yourself out and just, uh, I mean, li living the life of, of, of a men's health specialist in that sense. So, so Jonathan, uh, how's your week? Talk us, talk to us about uh, how a week of a men's health specialist looks like. Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate uh, to be able to build my practice around men's health. Like right now, 95% of, of what I do is men's health related, you know, be it erectile dysfunction, peyronie disease, low testosterone, BPH, you know, circumcisions, vasectomies. And we also do a little bit of cosmetics on the side, which that will be an entire different show. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but in but terms we will, of we will. <laughs> but it, in terms of the weekly schedule, I have three clinic days, usually Mondays, uh, Thursdays and Fridays. I'm in clinic uh, all day from 8.30 to 5. Then um, up until maybe like six months ago, I was only doing one day uh, in the OR, which was Wednesdays. And uh, probably around September or October of 2020, like my numbers like ramped up exponentially and I had to add a second day. So now I'm operating both Tuesdays and Wednesdays and occasionally I can squeeze in an outpatient case early in the morning prior to going to clinic if I need yeah. to. Um, and then in the you know afternoons, it's just trying to grind and, and try to find ways to attract more patients to our practice. Um, my practice is very different from from most urologists. Like most urologists, they you know you have referrals from a lot of primary care doctors, cardiologists, or even even partners in your field. I mean, right now in my office, it's only two of us, and the other guy who's with me, he's also a high volume prosthetic surgeon. So I had to find ways in order for me to uh, attract patients, and I, I've been able to do that basically through marketing. Marketing. I, I see. Also, you have a YouTube channel. Uh, you go to radio. So, so how how did you start it, doing that process, uh, market yourself, and, and to compete in a big city like Houston? Yeah, I mean, uh, for 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 that, I mean, I could tell you it would be two words: sweat and grind. Um, it's, I mean, when I finished my fellowship. Um, and I, I had to stay here in Houston. My wife is a dermatologist, so I had to stay here in Houston at least for a couple of years. And I told my wife, if, if, we're, if I'm going to develop my practice here, we're just going to stay. Um, and she loves it here as well, so it was great. But anyways, but coming out of fellowship, I joined, believe it or not, the highest prosthetic surgeon in the city. Um, so he had many patients who came in to see him. So I felt the need to create a name for myself early on. Um, I couldn't be a Robin when there's a Batman in the office, right? So, <laughs> so I did everything I could to market myself. I started knocking on doors and you know here in our building to let other doctors know I was here. Um, I created a website for myself. Uh, my partner was kind enough to allow me to do that. He's like, hey, you need to, you know, if you really want to do this, you have to, you know, create a name for yourself. So I, you know, created my website. I started creating my own content um, in order to, you know, because again, if you go with these web developers, they're going to create the same website for everyone. So in order for me to differentiate myself, I had to create content for, you know, for myself. Um, then I started going to social media, created a Facebook page, Instagram, uh, YouTube has been great. And then the radio show, because, uh, you know, we're here, I'm here in Houston, uh, you know, half of the population speaks Spanish and nobody 
nobody was targeting that population. So um, I was I was fortunate enough to get into the radio in a Spanish station, and everything has been uh -huh. booming since. Good. So so being a right place at the right time, and and definitely sweating it, uh, doing the work, and and just grinding it. That's so, right. And and that's. I mean, some young urologists, I mean, one thing is going to an academic setting that you're sitting there uh, waiting for the practice. You, you, you have your own steady salary, but if you're going to go into private practice, you need to that, do that. And you mm -hmm. cannot just sit be, uh, on, the, on the chair and just wait. You need to definitely grind it and, and, and work for those patients. That is correct. And I actually, uh, I was hearing to a previous uh, podcast from, from Backtable Urology, and I heard your story that you started paging yourself. <laughs> you started so, yeah. paging yourself in the hospital. <laughs> so you remember uh, Dr. Marcel Walker. So so he he was the one that gave me the idea and definitely I, I did it. I did it and, and people start hearing my name. So That's correct. And, and so that's what... And that's what you need. I mean, you need people to know that you're here because otherwise people won't know people. I mean, if, especially if you're starting out, um, you know, practice, people won't even respect you initially. I mean, you're the new guy out. Uh, people will see, still see you as a resident, especially if you're in a big hospital with, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, attendings around. Um, and here in my hospital, for example, there's three, you know, older urologists and nobody was going to start, you know, consulting you when you're, you know, straight out of training. Exactly. Um, so I had to, you know, quickly create a name for myself and even among urologists. I mean, I started calling urologists and started, you know, telling them, like, hey, I know you don't want to talk to guys about erectile dysfunction. Can it, it, it will consume 20 or 30 minutes out of your, <laughs> out of the yeah, appointment. That's great. So just, you know, send those over to me. I'm happy to have that conversation with them. Same thing with endocrinologists. You know, all those guys have, you know, all their patients have that diabetes, more, you know, half of those guys are going to have ED, same thing with cardiologists, you know, cancer specialists, and, and that's how you're going to, you know, be able to create a name for yourself. So you get the patient to the office, uh, he has ED, uh, let's say uh, a naive patient, he hasn't been on any medication or anything, H how's the process? Uh, do, do you do a CHIM score? H how do you evaluate this, that patient? So yeah, every single new patient, if you're a guy coming into our office, you're going to, you know, fill out a shim score. Um, and of course, I mean, if you have a guy who has a shim score of, you know, 22 to 25, you're not even going to bring up the conversation. Uh, but, you know, for everybody below that 22, I'll start asking them. And, and everybody above, you know, 45, you know, 50 years old, I'm going to say 45 because I know you're below that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so yeah, everybody above 45 years old, I will asking is like how strong is your erection and if they tell me uh it's you know doc is you know as strong as a bull i'm like okay on a scale from one to ten ten being on your honeymoon how what would you give it oh doc well you know it's not going to be the same as it was before and that's when they start saying it's like oh yeah you know it's it's you know it's probably like a seven or an eight okay so now we're talking that you need an extra push um, and that's how usually I start that conversation with them. However, if you have a, that's you know, basically for every guy who comes into our office, but a guy who comes in specifically for ED, uh, for me, the most important thing to remember for everybody who's hearing this is like, we need to remember and understand that these guys come in to see you in a very vulnerable state. And we need to take that into consideration. I mean, these guys basically had a really bad you know, experience last night. And and they made a fool of themselves, and that's the following morning they're going to be looking and calling you. Um, so, for example, here in my office, I have a policy. You know, everybody who calls in for ED, whenever they ask for an appointment, you're going to give it to them. Why? These guys 
if they don't see you right away, whenever if you don't give them the appointment that they want, they're gonna go somewhere else and get you know to be seen because really? they want they want this fix like ASAP. So that's basically you know what I do. I start asking them about everything. It's like from when symptoms occurred, you know, again, how strong is the erection, if they have presence or absence of a curvature, duration of the erection, any change between, you know, when but when between when having sex versus when they masturbate. I mean, you want to rule out those psychogenic. I mean, if you mm -hmm. have a guy who's 18, 20 years old coming in for ED, it is very likely that it is something psychogenic other than organic. Um, I also start asking them, you know, can they ejaculate? Uh, what treatments have they tried before? and have they seen anybody else before? Because again, if you have a guy who's already seen three urologists, you want to really go deep into that conversation and find out why he hasn't been able to find the answers like he's been looking for. And do you usually, I mean, start them on, on, on Viagra, Cialis, a high dose, or do, do you try to go low first, see what helps? Uh, how long does, it, does, it, uh, does it, the process of, of treating these patients last? So it so it actually depends. I mean, that's has changed. I mean, every year I do something different. Okay. Um, and it, initially, I would start them on medications, have them follow up in a few weeks, depending on the severity of their of their, of their ED or if they have like a lot of comorbidities. I would do uh, a penile Doppler and duplex ultrasound, um, which will give you know both you us as urologists and also, you know, the patient better answers of what's really happening. Um, but now things have changed. So now, I mean, we found, I found out that you can bill for the ultrasound um, and do it the same day. And it's not, not going to be bundled to the first to patient visit. visit. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. so, so now basically what I do is the, again, same thing. You, you basically just take it by ear. If you have a guy who has mild ED, he's like 60, 70% without any treatment, it is very likely that pills are going to work. So you're not, I'm not going to order an ultrasound for that guy. But if you have a guy who's like, doc, I haven't had sex in three years, exactly. then that's the guy you're going to be, okay, let's, you know, let's, I can give you the prescriptions, but let's do that test today. Uh, try the medications first. And then, you know, you can come back in two, three weeks and we'll discuss everything. In terms of what dosage I give them, usually uh, I either give them both, not now with good RX and, you know, compounding pharmacies, you can get these medications. It's very cheap. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It doesn't make any sense how other uh, big pharmacies charge $50 for a pill and GoodRx gives you $20 for 30-day supply. Uh, that's it correct. Make, it doesn't make any sense, but I mean, what, that's another topic. So yeah, uh, so usually <laughs> usually for those, what I do is I tell them you can either take, uh, you, you can try both Cialis and Viagra. I have a document that I created here in my office and I basically, you know, describes like all the side effects, how to take the medications. That's the most important thing. Uh, I mean, these guys think that these pills are magic, that they take the medication and five minutes later, they're going to be like, a, you, know, work, you know, carrying on like a cannon. And I'm like, dude, I mean, you need to be stimulated. So usually what I tell them is, um, depending on how bad they are, I mean, I either do them full, you know, full 20 milligrams of Cialis or, or uh, full 100 milligrams of Viagra, or sometimes I give them, okay, hey, just take the daily Tadalafil, five milligrams every single day, and on your way out of work, if tonight is going to be your lucky night, you're going to take that 100 milligrams of Viagra on your way to work. That way you don't, you're not timing yourself. You just get home and you're, you can get busy right away. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So, so let's talk about the patient that fails uh, medications. They fail the vacuum. They, 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 they fail everything. So you end up doing a prosthesis. 
what type of implant do you use? Uh, do you use what, what company, what brand? Uh, Coloplast, uh, uh, AMS, or Boston Scientific? How do you decide which way to go? So, I mean, I do. I use both. Uh, both companies hate me for that. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm a. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a consultant with both companies. I have great relationships with both territorial managers from both companies here. They actually even get along, um, which is great for me. Uh, I mean, there's no tension uh, here, at least here in, in my office. Uh, or in the OR. But yeah, so basically I go, I use both companies equally. I really don't have a preference between one and the other. I I do try to always use a three-piece uh, as long as I can, unless, you know, the guy doesn't have hands to pump it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I mean, even, I know like there's many surgeons out there who are worried about, for example, a transplant patient who has a, a you know, a pelvic kidney and they're worried about, you know, injuring it with a reservoir. I try with all my might to be able uh, to be able to get them a three piece just to give them the most natural uh, device that they can actually, they actually can. Usually whenever they come in specifically asking for a penile prosthesis, I, I show them both. I tell them like, hey, this is the AMS, you know, this is the Coloplast. I tell them this is like two great cars. Like you're comparing between a Mercedes and a BMW. You're going to have a great car regardless. But of course they have, you know, their specific features that you really want to uh, know about before you get yourself into this. Um, most guys are going to ask you, like, oh, but doc, I mean, you're the one, you're the expert. Which one would you recommend for me? And that's when I start, you know, telling them, it's, okay, so if you're younger, uh, sometimes I tend to go with the Coloplast because again, you want something that will give them like a really, really hard erection. They really don't care of how it feels when it's flaccid. Um, for older guys, I usually go with, you know, Boston Scientific just because they, it's easier for, for them to find that deflate button uh, because of the shape of that pump. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and then guys who have, you know, really big phalluses, uh, I try to give them a coloplast because again, it's, you know, it, it has more girth, but I basically just tell them like, Hey man, what do you want? What are you looking for? Um, and depending on what are their goals, that's, that's basically how I go. And that's actually even going back to the previous question. Like you asked me like, uh, how do you evaluate these guys at the end of the visit? I always ask them, what is your goal? It's like, oh, doc, well, my goal is to be able to satisfy my partner. I'm like, one way or the other, I want you, yeah, I just gonna want, <laughs> want, I want, just want to let you know that one way or the other, we're going to get you there. And whenever they hear that, because again, I mean, most of these guys are hopeless. I mean, they go in here, they come into your office, they're like freaking out. They're like, my wife is going to leave me or I'm going to be, I'm not going to be able to have sex ever again. And what the heck's going on? I mean, I tried pills, not, you know, pills are not working. What else can I do? Um, and whenever you start showing them their options, you know, they, they, they will know that you have, the, that you have their back. So even me, like in the first visit, everybody knows about all the options. And that way I can tell them like, Hey man, you have pills, you have vacuum, you have suppositories, you have the injections, Trimix, yeah. so you have the, the prosthesis. And just in case don't feel like, you know, you have to go through every single step before you reach the prosthetic. If you fail pills or, or you're having like really bad side effects from the pills, I, you, you, all the options are open for you. You decide what you want for yourself. Okay, good. Those are definitely good advices. Uh, technically, in terms of, of, of surgery, uh, what approach do you use? You go penoscrotal, infrapubic, what do you do? So I, I go 98% penoscrotal. Um, I mean, both approaches are great. I mean, both approaches, 
you know, are have been mastered by now. Uh, they both have their pros and cons. You train both. So mm. mo yeah, so most my when I when I was doing my training, I did uh, like I was with Ron Wong at, at at MD Anderson at University of here of Texas here in Houston, and he does mostly penoscrotal. And the good thing for him, I mean, it, most of what I know, I owe it to, I owe I owe it to him. The guy is a magician operating, and he was very quick uh, and efficient uh, through the penoscrotal approach. And usually, that's the big benefit that you get from the airfree pubic approach. And that was basically mastered by Paul Pareto. I mean, he Very revolutionized true. the field uh, since he started, you know, bringing up his infrapubic approach. I mean, he could do the surgery in 15, 20 minutes and I didn't believe it until I went there and saw him myself. You know, saw it Somebody will see it. So yeah, he I mean... Just put it in, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, That's I mean, the only the, thing the, he does. I know, exactly. So, I mean, the benefits of an infrapubic, for example, I mean, it is a quicker, you know, procedure. You have direct access for the reservoir uh, whenever you're going to place it. Uh, the recovery also can be quicker because, again, you're not opening the scrotum. So guys are going to be able to cycle their implant a lot quicker than guys who go through a penoscrotal approach. Uh, the reason I go penoscrotal is, again, I mean, I can be just as efficient and quick, you know, with that approach. Um, I'm able to place that pump in a really good dependent position and don't have to worry about high riding pumps or anything like that. And I, if I go into trouble and there's something else that I need to be done, I can just extend that incision all the way up and, and do whatever needs to be done. I don't have to make an alternate alternate uh, incision. But again, that's just me. Yeah. Uh, usually what I tell guys is like, hey, man, I because mean, I have guys coming in all the time that, to come in to, and train. They ask me, it's like, hey, which one's better? It's like, there's really not a better one. Um, it's whatever you feel comfortable with. Good. So, uh, Jonathan, in, let, let's talk about some some uh, special considerations. Let's talk about a, a patient with incontinence. You are incontinence. Uh, are you doing procedures at the same time or are you just treating first the incontinence? What are you doing with those patients? So nowadays, the you know, it's... It's been actually limited by hospitals more than anything else. Um, I mean, his in the past we were able to do both, but now we all know that whenever you do a procedure uh, and you add an additional procedure to to th to that, the second procedure is only going to be paid, you know, reimbursed only half. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> so true. so many surgeons and you know. Here in our hospitals, they actually don't even allow us to do both. For example, an implant and an AUS at the same time. Okay. Um, however, of course, you know, of course, in terms of recovery, it's a little bit better for the patient. They only have to recover once instead of recovering twice. Uh, but most of the time, I try to fix the waterworks before I start, you know, fixing the the implant. Um, and we try to avoid, you know, doing both unless, I mean, there's actually this new procedure for guys who have minimal incontinence, uh, basically like one or two pads a day, or guys who are leaking whenever they reach orgasm, which is what we call climacteria. Of course, these are for prostate cancer survivors. Um, or guys who had a TERP, for example, and now they have minimal leakage. Uh, there's a procedure called the mini sling. And basically, you place a graft right, you know, between the corpus covering the, you know, cover, you use basically on their corporotomies, you create a, you, you place this little graft. And when the, the patients pump that implant, that, that graft will basically compress the urethra and won't be able to, uh, doesn't allow the urethra to leak. It actually works very well. So yeah, so so I think the other name is the mini jupet. The mini jupet, that's right. So so uh, um, 
one of our attendants here, one of my partners, uh, he, he trained with, uh, he, he trained, he's a reconstruction specialist and, and definitely he's doing it. Uh, I went to see a couple of procedures with him and, and it, yeah, it works. It works. So, so it, it's, it's a, 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 something new. And very uh, easy, very yeah, easy to do. <laughs> and you can definitely do that at the same time. And you can actually, and people, I know like people always ask me about billing for that one. Yep. You just build for a sling. And for a it sling, gets, that's what he told me, yeah. And it gets reimbursed. And again, it's minimal morbidity. You're right there. You don't have to make any additional incisions or anything like that. And it, and you're not burning any bridges. Even if it doesn't work, you can go back there and do a, you know, a sling. A or, sling or, or whatever. Or doing whatever, yeah. So, so in terms of, of patients, I mean, you, you mentioned the patient with, with kidney transplant, uh, say post-radiation, inguinal surgery, ectop uh, what about ectopic placements, uh, the concealed reservoir? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, you... I am all about ectopic placement. Like most of my latest research is actually on, on ectopic placement. If, and if Paul Prater listens to this podcast, he's probably going to uh, ding me for it. He hates the word <laughs> ectopic. Uh, usually what we use is alternative uh, reservoir placement. But anyways, yeah, I mean, Post-radiation, I'm really not that concerned. Uh, of course, you know, post-radical uh, surgery in the pelvis, post-pelvic surgery, either cystectomy, the, uh, you know, prostatectomy, once that, that uh, retroperitoneal space in the, in the pubic area, in the pelvic area is compromised, what we want is to avoid that space, right? You don't want to injure anything down there. So usually for those, I mean, the ectopic is definitely recommended. Me personally, all my surgeries, I go alternative, you know, reservoir placement. I go ectopic for all of them, be it the conceal reservoir or even with the uh, coloplast um, the clover. Uh, clover leaf. Uh, what I usually do, for example, is in order for, to avoid palpation, I always use the 125 milliliter, basically the large uh, clover leaf reservoir, and I underfill it. And that okay. way that you don't have like a big ball there. Because again, if you use a 75, most implants are going to require somewhere between 50 and 70 cc's. So you're going to really, they're really going to, you're going to have a small ball right there. Um, and palpation is very minimal. And patients really don't, you know, don't, are, are not really bothered by it. They probably complain about it for about a week. And you just tell them like, hey, you're going to have some, you know, lower abdominal pain for a few days, but they're probably mostly focused on their penile pain. So, so that's a great advice. I mean, yeah, I, I when I have gone ectopic, I never gone bigger, mm -hmm. thinking that oh, bigger is gonna be more noticeable. But definitely, if you underinflate it, it should be uh, a nicer in that sense uh, to palpation. Uh, so, so let's say you're doing the procedure. And this happened to me uh, a couple of times already. Uh, you're doing the procedure, uh, and it's specific with the coloplast that the pump comes connected to the to the. Cylinders, Just, yeah. So, so sometimes that that uh that pump is longer and maybe it doesn't fit on the scrotum. I mean, so so it's already open. Uh, I mean, I, you don't want to go ahead and open another prosthesis. So, ha have you that happened to you, or have you seen it? Yes, I mean, it's I mean, there are some guys that have tiny scrotums and really tight scrotums, especially yeah. those guys who've been on testosterone for decades. Um, <laughs> this, yeah. You really have no space to place the pump. I mean, and what I do is I just, I mean, the good thing for for these devices, they have multiple connectors. So I just, you know, cut the, you know, you cut the cut tubing. Out, okay. 
and then just you know uh, uh, reposition it to to whatever is uh, good for the patient. I've done that several times. The other uh, thing about that is uh, the way to avoid that is is basically trying to avoid the rear tip extenders. The good thing is like now for both companies they have you know longer tubings. Uh, so as long as you have uh, you know that that proximal core priority, the edge of that proximal core priority on the bottom is within the single digits. It's like 10 or, you know, nine, 10 or centimeters or below. You, sh you should have, you know, enough length for you to avoid that you can even avoid using a rear tip. And now we know that the axial rigidity is a lot better uh, in the penis. It feels more natural for them if we avoid those rear tip extenders. Is there a situation where you go the other way around and actually put extenders instead of just going big? Yeah, so for guys who are really deep, and I mean, for for these obese they have guys, eleven down under, and then a little bit outside. Not even ten, eleven. I've I've had guys who have 15. like fourteen, <laughs> fifteen. Okay. Yeah, and for those guys, I mean, there's no way you you'll be able to to do that. Uh, you know, to to avoid rear tips. So I for those I go I undersize the cylinder and just add a little bit more rear tip. But again, those situations are are rare. Most important thing is that whenever you're doing your dissection, make sure that you go very, very low um, uh, to to do that. Good. So yeah, I have had patients that come to me, and they complain that it's not rigid. I mean, it's rigid, but it's not. I mean, ob ob obese patient, like you mentioned, but they don't have like the the actual erection. That's most likely what happened. That they instead of just using some extender, they went down, and now you don't. You have just a little bit coming on the outside. And you you don't get that extension or or that erectile sensation. Yeah, and, and I mean for those, I mean there's really not much you can do. <laughs> yeah. So so Jonathan, so let's see. Let's say I mean when it's time to abort. Let's say you do a perforation. Uh, you, you're di dilating the 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 corpus. Uh, you go through the urethra. W what do you do? You just abort? Do you go one side? W what do you do? So I mean that's a that's a really tough uh, tough situation. Fortunately, I haven't had a case in which I you know dilated through the urethra. Um, first of all, it's trying to avoid that. How do you avoid that? Try to use whenever you're using dilators, don't use anything smaller than a nine uh, millimeter, because uh, though any, anything above a nine millimeter Brooks or Hagar's is gonna I mean you're asking for trouble. Um, so, and of course, you know, try to stay lateral whenever you're dilating my, I mean, usually for those guys who do have a urethral, um, injury, uh, I would either do a single cylinder, um, or just, you know, come back and fight another day. Cause again, if you haven't dilated, I mean, or if it was just like that initial dilation, I would just abort, come, you know, come back another day. Cause otherwise you're just asking yourself for trouble. You don't want a guy who comes in with an infection later on. So I had this patient, uh, he had Peyronie's disease. So I dilated one side, which was very good. Then the other side, which was actually where he had the, the curvature distally, I did a perforation trying to, with the medicine bone, trying to dilate that area to be mm. able to fit, to go more distal in the glands. Mm -hmm. So I put in, I mean, yeah, I was between go aborting. I didn't know what to do. I just put one cylinder and he's doing great. Uh, but he is the expectation is not what he wanted mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, I put a Titan X, uh, the, the Titan, uh, and he wanted a little bit more girth. 
But but I mean I, that's actually a really good. But that was actually a really good decision on your uh, on your yeah. behalf. You already had dilated one side, and it was perfect. It was and good, it was so. and it was good. So I mean, for those guys, I, I would I would even tell them like, hey man, you have something, um, and your case was difficult. You had a lot of fibrosis yeah. there. It's like at least you have a Titan and not <laughs> not, not something shorter. And, and, and the reality is good. So yeah, so so he's good. So okay. but still uh, he wants a little bit more. So. We're talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so not just convinced, but, but we're talking about it. Yeah. I mean, that I can't imagine. I mean, going back there, I mean, I've had guys, I remember, I will never forget, I had a guy who he had an implant uh, done by somebody else. And he, ha he also had a bladder neck contracture. And they they placed the implant without fixing the bladder neck contracture. He comes, he comes in to see me. He's like, Doc, I can't pee. And he has his implant. Was recently placed. It's about two months. Um, he had a bladder neck contraction. So I do a, you know, I do a, a, an incision of the bladder neck. I place a catheter. The issues like the guy had problems with walking, and f w during his recovery, he had a catheter, and the catheter was basically, you know, pulling uh, the leg back on one side for like, you know, for several days. Wow. And then the guy, whenever he went, I mean, we took the catheter out. He was fine. He went in to have sex with his wife and boom, it perforated into his urethra. So I took, I told him like, Hey man, I mean, now you have an infect. It was infected. It got infected. So we had to take everything out. We'll come back and find another day. He was really eager to get it back. So we went three months in to go, to go see him. And I always induce an erection at the beginning of a case. Whenever I, I, I placed the, my needle in order for me to dilate the corpus and everything just started squirting out from his urethra and oh. i'm like man i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go in and place you know something so we had to abort five minutes into the case uh okay. so and we went back you know basically went until he completed the six months after uh everything and that's when we were able to place everything and the guy's doing great now okay. uh but it was it was a good lesson uh for everyone it's like you want to fix the water you know the water works before you start yeah. messing with implants so, so talking about that, I mean, you have a, let's say a, a young patient, he had accident or diabetes, whatever. Now he's obstructed from the prostate. What are the options? So, I mean, you can do any, all the options are open for him. Um, I know the, the important thing is you want to do something that will try to avoid catheter, no, long-term catheterization. Um, so, I mean, don't go out doing a suprapubic, you know, prostatectomy that the yeah, guy's yeah. going to require a catheter for a week or two or whatever. Um, you know, try to do something that you will be able to take the catheter out, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, I, for example, I mean, I, you know, you already know this. I do a lot of yeah. resumes. I've been able to do resumes uh, for these guys and they've done well. I mean, I've, I haven't had any, any problems with, with any of my patients. That being said, Doing those resumes when, especially guys who have longer penises, sometimes you you struggle to get to that bladder neck just because of that process because the penis won't you know won't, won't compress, and so that's something to take into consideration. If you have a guy who has like a really big penis, don't don't at least don't do it in the office while he's awake. Yeah. Well. Um, <laughs> and then whenever if you do are going if you are going to do a procedure, my recommendation would be just to avoid, you know, for what I told you about that other guy, to yeah. avoid the perforation, you don't want the catheter to be rubbing against the same side all the time. So what I do, if they're wearing a leg back, I tell them you're gonna alternate every 24 hours, you're gonna be alternating the leg back from leg to leg. And that way it's not gonna be, you know, rubbing against the same side at all times. Okay. And, and do you tell them, hey, hey, there's always a possibility of perforation, I mean, damage to the, to the implant? 
um, they have to know. Okay. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you owe, I always undersell and over deliver. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. And that's definitely a good advice. I mean, yeah. So, so let's say, I mean, so let, let's talk about the logistics of, of prosthetics in terms of when you, after the procedure, how long you take them, uh, you give the antibiotics for how long, when do you see them after the procedure? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, we all know that the most common risk is infection. Uh, so I start I actually start them on an antibiotic the day before the surgery. Uh, they take an antibiotic and they continue with the antibiotics for one week after the surgery. I think it's voodoo. I think it's all, you know, it's just for, for me to be able to sleep better at you night. Sleep better, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's important. Because whenever whenever they start calling your office, hey, doc, I'm still a little bit swollen. I'm like, you've been on, you're still on antibiotics, so <laughs> it's not an infection. Which one um, you use? What antibiotic? So I use a fluoroquinolone. Uh, I use okay. Levaquin and um, a Keflex, and I do a cephalosporin. Um, I've been thinking about you know going off fluoroquinolones just because of the side effects yeah. but again i tell them like hey it's just for a few days if i if i'm concerned about their joints or anything like that i, I give them something else to just to cover for you know gram negatives and also i think there's some implanters also that, that use like, like a couple of days of, of antifungal medication that is correct do, do, do you use it uh you are you always or, or just sometimes? So I so I do use them for pre-op uh, and okay. and not and basically pre-op in the operating room. So in the okay. operating room, I give them vancomycin, gentamicin, and diflucan. Initially, oh, well, okay. in, initially, I was just using diflucan for only diabetics and guys who had coloplasties because they don't. I mean, they don't have the inhibitome from Boston Scientific. Okay. Uh, but now I just, you know, just started doing. It's like, hey, just give it to everyone. Uh, that would just to make it easier for you know for the staff because they were always asking, it's like, oh, are we getting diflucan or not? I'm like, just put it for everyone. Um, in terms of of post op, I really don't give them uh, that unless I'm really concerned that they will have it. I haven't been burnt by it before. The inf I've had two infections and they were both bacterial. Um, in terms of the ambulatory procedures, I used to keep everybody overnight. Um, and then after COVID, I actually you know, started discharging oh, wow, ev okay. everyone. And ever since I just, you know, started doing that. So it, it's, it's better. I mean, these yeah. guys, be believe it or not, Oche, I would say 99% of my implants, they have my personal cell phone number. Okay. Um, so, and that's how I, I tell them, like, hey, man, you're, I'm doing this surgery for you. I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm here for you. Just text, don't call. I have a family. Um, and most of them, I mean, they actually respect that very well. I'm really, I really don't get bothered much. Um, and I also sleep better at night. I would rather have them contact me than, than having problems than going somewhere else with somebody who has no idea what to do with them. And definitely, I mean, that's part of your selling pole also. They will, uh, word of mouth, they will go to other friends. Hey, go to Clavel. Except, except when you have a guy who's you know is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, uh, I don't want to give you my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonathan, so uh, any special bandages after after the procedure? So I do, I do uh, uh, what we call the mummy wrap, but, uh -huh. I but I modify it. You know, the mummy wrap basically goes all the way up to the uh, head of the penis. My mummy wrap basically just covers the scrotum and, and keeps the penis exposed. Okay. And, the re and the reason I do that is because I want, I want them to keep that dressing for 48 hours. So I keep that dressing that's basically, you know, uh, taking the, you know, keeping the scrotum under compression for two days. 
they take it out at home at two days after they've already processed all the fluids that we gave them in the operating room. Um, and that way I avoid hematomas. We avoid, you know, severe scrotal swelling and they do very well. I actually don't drain. I know that that's a big debate. Like if, you know, we should we drain or not? I don't leave any drains for these guys and they do very well. No folly or anything. Uh, I don't do, I Excellent. take the Foley out before they wake up. Okay. Um, and if they are not able to pee, I put the catheter back in and they can, they can just take it out at home. Um, and most of the time I mean, we just teach them, it's like, just take it out early in the morning and you'll be fine. So, so I, I've been doing the moment wrap of the scrotum and that definitely, I think they, you can start cycling the, the, the pump earlier, uh, mm -hmm. or, or at least you're able to touch the scrotum earlier. That is correct. And, and tell them to to just move it forward and just try to keep it closer to the skin. When do you see the, the patients afterwards? So I usually see my patients at six weeks. Um, and I mean, I did that during fellowship. My partner, for example, he's, I mean, he also does a ton of implants. And initially, I mean, I, I was, sometimes I was seeing his patients when I started early on and he had his patients come back at four weeks. If you do, if you go penoscrotal, sometimes they will still be sore yeah. at four weeks. So that's why I tell them like, Hey man, you know, go at six weeks and they have my cell phone. So I just tell them like, Hey, if you feel great by four or five weeks, just shoot me a picture of your incision. If the incision looks fine and you feel comfortable cycling the implant, uh, just go ahead and cycle. And the good thing is like, I mean, I mean, I, I was able to create a really good video uh, for to on how to best inflate and deflate both devices, both the AMS and the Colplast. So for everyone who's listening to us. That's on your YouTube channel? It's in my YouTube channels. Okay. It's actually my two latest videos. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it's a great resource. It saved a lot of conversations uh, with patients. You can go to YouTube and just yeah, Google just, Jonathan yeah, Clavel. That's right. You just put my name, Jonathan Clavel, C-L-A-V-E-L-L, -L -L, um, and you'll be able to find basically most of my work. Um, people, I have, I've had colleagues telling me like, Hey, don't, you know, don't put your videos like that. You're basically spilling out all your secrets. And again, I, that's the way that I show patients like, Hey, this, this is how I do it. And this is what you're going to get yourself into. And, and they know, and, and it's actually even brought more patients in to see me. That's yeah, that, that's awesome. So definitely I, I'll look into them. I have seen a few, a few, but I need to know the, the one for the cycling, uh, started cycling the patient. So, uh, after six weeks, you see them, uh, they start cycling. How long does it take prior to start using it? So I usually start, I mean, at six weeks, I tell them like, Hey, you, you're good to use it. Usually by, you know, four or five weeks, it should be okay. okay. I wouldn't, I mean, for, for those that, uh, do infrapubic that guys are able to cycle it a lot sooner, like two or three weeks. I know there are docs that, you know, they're, they, as soon as you can start cycling, they, they allow them to, to have sex. I don't encourage that because again, I want those core parotomies to hold well. Um, and I don't want a core primary to burst open. I've actually seen, uh, not my patient, but I've seen patients who started having sex beforehand and the core primary opened up and the cylinder just slipped yeah. right, <laughs> right through that oh. core parotomy. So, um, and again, I mean, it wasn't my patient, but it, it's actually a really cool video that I actually have to post some at some point. Okay. <laughs> and, and do you leave the, the cylinder a little bit, uh, fill or full or, or, or completely, um, um... Yeah, so I all my patients have they're about seventy percent inflated. Um, I want you know after post op, and I leave. It's gonna the, be I, like that for six weeks. I and I tell them it's gonna especially for whenever you have a you know thin guy who has a big penis. I tell them your recovery is gonna suck. 
uh, but in a good way. Um, and of course, I mean, if, the, if by you know two or three weeks they feel like, it's like doc, I, I just can't take it, uh, then I tell them like, hey, you can start cycling if you feel comfortable doing it. Uh, they can start cycling up to six weeks, and then at five or six weeks, that's when I tell them like, hey, you can start having sex. Good. So uh, yeah, I usually go yeah four four weeks. I tell them to start using it, uh, cycling it couple of minutes a day uh, for two or three weeks. And then, uh, yes, it will be more or less from six to eight weeks, start using it. But usually diabetics, I, they, they tend to be, be a little bit longer, mm -hmm. uh, depending on, on how their, their glucose is. Uh, do you do an A1C prior to surgery for diabetics? Yes, I do. And it's just so that I have an idea. I really don't have a cutoff uh, for okay. them to you know, undergo surgery. The most important thing is that they are compliant with their medications. Uh, for example, if you have a guy who his last A1, you know, three months ago, it was eight and now it's 10. That's not a guy you want to take into the operating room. Uh, there was actually even a, uh, there's been uh, recent studies showing that the pre-op glucose is actually more important than the hemoglobin A1C. So it's very important that you have them at least seeing an endocrinologist or you know seeing their primary care doctor and they, and you have to and tell them, it's like, hey man, I did my part, now it's on you. If you get infected, it's because of you. I, I did this and this and this and that to avoid infections. If you get infected, it's all on you. And and that way by giving them you know, responsibility, yeah. you know, they they tend to respond a little bit better. And do you have any cutoff for, for that patient in pre-op? Uh let's say if it's in four hundred, will you still go ahead? Uh to to be honest, I don't even ask. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, of course, if the you know if anesthesia you know causes, like, hey, exactly. this, yeah. this guy's at three fifty, I will ask him, okay, if is he you know insulin dependent? If he's insulin dependent, I will still proceed. I just tell him, like, hey, man, you know, make sure. I mean, because again, they they come in without you know without even uh, you know eating or anything like that, so they haven't used their medications. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard, man. <laughs> that was a but, tough decision. No, I mean, yeah, but I mean, as long as there were. Uh, you you speak to them communication, and like you said, I mean, give them some responsibility in in that part. Yeah. Uh, and you take, I mean, do you do anything different in terms of the antibiotic for uh, those patients? Not, so not really, uh, okay. not really. I mean, of course, for those I really want to use uh, diflucan uh, for sure. So I make sure that they have, you know, that they have their antibiotics. You know, the vancomycin, I want it completely like 100% in before I make my incision. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I just take him out to the, on, on the fly. I mean, out of, for example, the, one of the infections that I had, the last one actually that I had, he was a diabetic, um, but he decided that he didn't want to take his medications because he could control it with diet. And yeah. he and he came in every morning, his, <laughs> his glucose was 400. <laughs> And he's like, Doc, no, so, sorry, in in the morning, it was like 180 or something. It's like, oh, no, Doc, I'm, so, I'm below cute, 200. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but you eat breakfast and that's 400 for yeah. the rest of the day. Um, and that guy got infected. And I told him, like, hey, man, I mean, I told you, I told you. Uh, but in terms of, you know, A1Cs, I mean, I've done, you know, 10, 11s and, and, and okay. they do and they do fairly well. Uh, you know, 12, 13. I would tell I would encourage them to wait a little bit longer. Do Do you see any difference in terms of pain afterwards with those patients? It's actually a great question, and I haven't looked into that. Um, okay. I haven't looked into that. It's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, some some patients with neuropathy. I mean, they they they're more sensitive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After you do any intervention, they complain of they continue to complain of that urethral persistent pain. So I don't know if they're. I mean, I haven't looked into it, but. 
definitely it's a it's a good good thing to to look into to see if there's a difference in terms of pain medication I mean, afterwards. That, that said, I mean all my patients, I give them gabapentin post-op. So for for how long? So I give them. So my post-op regimen is meloxicam, gabapentin. Uh, meloxicam, I, I give them for two weeks. I don't want them okay. to be longer than two weeks just to avoid you know kidney damage. Uh, but the gabapentin, I usually tell them that's your go-to and Tylenol. Um, and then I also give them tramadol for breakthrough. But the tram most patients they don't need it because the other thing that. I one of the hospitals that the I'm doing my surgery, they allow me to use Expiral. Exactly, yeah. And man, I mean, that Expiral does wonders. <laughs> are, are you injecting in the, in the corpus prior to the procedure? Yes. So I okay. do a I do a full block, and I also do uh, intracavernosal injection. I induce an erection to all my patients. I just do so many peyronis cases that I, I don't want any surprises. So I basically induce everybody with the Expiral. So when you're, use, when you're doing the... The erection, I mean, the artificial erection, you're using Expro at that, at that moment? That's right. I okay. combine Expro with uh, with saline. I tell anesthesia, it's like, hey, you're going to have some changes in your EKG. Don't freak okay. out. Um, and I haven't had any, you know, any issues. And I think, yeah, and I think that using that is the key to just not giving Percocet or anything more stronger. Definitely. Uh, I was doing it before, but now the the hospital they let me doing the, the using it, and, and yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a game changer in that sense. Yeah, I've uh, I've only I've only prescribed narcotics twice uh, since I started practice, um, well, and the only patients that needed it were guys who were all were already taking narcotics for you know chronic back pain issues, so they're. You know, pain tolerance is very low, um, and I and for those, I I I told them like, hey man, I'll just give it to you. But uh, again, they most of the time they don't need it. They don't need it. Good. So Jonathan, so we'll, we'll continue to talk about other cases. I mean, the long term complications, andrology, resume, other special considerations. Uh, do you, any any other suggestion or anything you want to say in terms of that initial evaluation or that initial uh, first implant procedure? I mean, again, the most important thing is just remember that these guys are very vulnerable. They are hopeless. They are just looking for answers for somebody who can actually listen to them. Um, the other thing that I would, you know, make sure is like if they have a partner who supports them, try to involve them in the conversation because these guys are going to leave your office like super pumped. They're super happy and excited that they have, they're going to have a solution. And then they go home, their partner asks them, it's like, Hey, so what did the doctor say? And then they don't remember anything that you told them. <laughs> um, and then it's like, Oh yeah, he talked about, you know, pills. And if not pills, we're going to have a, some implant that, you know, we can use and I'm going to be able to, you know, use it at any time that I want. And the partner's like going to be like, what the heck are you guys talking about? <laughs> so always, always try to involve the partner in these conversations. It's going to go a long way. It's going to, you know, even, you know, save you a lot of long conversations. Again, you have this conversation for 30 minutes and then the partner comes back and you have to repeat the exact same conversation. So the partner can now understand. So I always encourage them, it's like, hey, if your partner's in the waiting area, because most of the time you're there in the waiting area, it's like, bring them along. It's like, oh, COVID restriction, I don't care. Bring them in, they wear, they can wear a mask and we can, you know, go both sit down and talk. And for those patients that go to the office, I mean, the first time, do you have videos? I mean, you play videos for them while they're waiting in the, in the room? Until, while you're seeing other patients? So I don't. The only ones that I use videos for are actually for resume patients. Uh, okay. I, whenever I do the Cisto, I tell them, hey, get dressed, watch this video, and it actually gives me time to see another patient while they're looking at the video. 
Yeah. So so I, I use those two. I use the, the green light uh, for mm -hmm. Europe. Those cars are great. Give, I mean, the, the reps are great giving us the, the those small video boxes. Yeah. So, so that's good. But definitely, I mean, yeah, there, there should be something for ED. It will be better for us. Uh, <laughs> easier to explain the procedure. Take a, maybe take a little bit of, of time for, from, from our part. I mean, they, they, there are videos. I mean, I know Boston Scientific definitely has um, a video that you can mm -hmm. show them. Uh, but again, I mean, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't give that video on the first visit. They're going to freak out if the freak first thing, the, if the first the thing surgery, exactly. be, be, before you even see them, it's like, oh yeah, you, you need a surgery. <laughs> true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so Jonathan, thanks for being here in back table. Uh, we'll definitely look, looking forward to see you again and, and talk to uh, about other things that you do like andrology. Uh, the resume, other stuff, I mean, complications. You're going to talk about sexual medicine uh, in the conference, about the complications. So that, that's definitely one talk that we're going to do afterwards. The Defin definitely, definitely, man. Again, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. Uh, even if you even want to talk about Peyronie's, I know that's that's a big, a big, uh, usually, <laughs> I, I remember I gave up last year, actually, no, two years ago, I gave, they invited me to give a presentation on the complications after Cyoflex and Peroni surgery. It was close to, it's actually a funny story. It was close to uh, Halloween. So it was like a October 20 something. And my first slide, it was like a, you know, big curved penis. I'm like, fear the penis. It's like, <laughs> if there's, if there's one condition that most urologists fear, it's actually Peroni's disease. <laughs> and now, yeah. And now they're, they're actually, there's advertisement for that. I mean, before you didn't saw it in the news uh, on the TV. So, so that's something that, that, and you see it more. I mean, when you ask, about curvature a lot of men have it most of the time just subclinical but definitely very important to ask and, and, and be aware of it De definitely i mean now now the word is out i mean you can i mean even in a serious xm i mean I, I always uh listen to that on my way uh to the office and out of the office listening to sports and and all, all you can hear is like beat the curve.com and da -da 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 -da. <laughs> so so yeah i mean those patients are definitely going to come in and they're going to be asking for help and Again, invite me here once again. I mean, I love doing this, so. We will, uh, we will. So, so good <laughs> to have you. And we'll definitely uh, talk some more another time. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. And, and you have a great day, man. You too. Take care.